0: To another episode of Season of the Bitch, the podcast where the hosts recognize that there's a lot of stuff we don't know and we don't understand. So we talk to people to find out more about it and we listen to what they have to say. True. Today we have me, Ambria, and
1: Laura. So this week, we are digging into leftism and foreign policy, and we have some incredible guests with us. We have Walida, Rain, and Miriam. Thank you so, so much for joining us on Season of the Bitch.
2: Woo! Yeah! (laughs) Yeah. Happy to be here. Yay!
1: And as usual on our show, we like to have you all introduce yourselves um, so that you can give as much or as little information as you would like. So let's start with Walida tell us about yourself.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: Sure. First of all, thanks so much for having this episode. It is such an important topic, especially to me. So I'm, I'm in Chicago. I'm a member of DSA, uh, Chicago DSA. I am a Syrian. Uh, My family is from Iraq, although I was born here in Chicago. I spent about five years in Washington, D.C., advocating for minority and indigenous people's rights in Iraq and eventually also Syria because of the war there. Mm. I spent about eight months in 2011 uh, living in Iraq, in Sulaymaniyah, in Iraq's Kurdistan region in the north. So I've had a little bit of you know, firsthand experience on what imperialism has done um, in Iraq, and specifically what it's done to minoritized groups like Yazidis and Assyrians, um, and a few more that I'm willing to bet probably most people haven't heard about. Um, so that's where my background comes from. I'm, you know, a, a foreign policy sort of wonk. It's it's my interest. I've, I've always paid attention to what's happening overseas just by dint of being an American Iraqi Assyrian. So foreign policy frameworks, especially coming from the left, is something that is pretty important to me.
1: Mm, awesome. Thank you so much.
3: Um, Rain? Sure. So um, it's, it's always tough to follow Walita. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I am between um, Chicago and Washington, D.C. I am the director of a newly founded think tank called the Syrian Policy Institute, And really our goal through this new organization, which actually um, Walita is a part of as well, Uh, we're honored to have her on our board, we essentially campaign to ensure that Assyrians who are struggling to maintain their rights in in the traditional Assyrian homeland, whichever country that may be in today's world, can, can make their voices heard. Um, So uh, I really want to thank you guys for giving us a platform and giving us the opportunity to um, join you to discuss some of these important issues.
0: It is our pleasure. Yes, we are honored to have you. Yes.
1: Um, Miriam.
4: Hello. Thank you so much for inviting me to be here today. I'm really, really excited. I've never done a podcast before, so it's really exciting. Um, (laughs) So... um, I am currently in today called Ottawa, in Canada. I'm also a Syrian from uh, what's today called Iraq. My family left Iraq in 1993, so just after the Gulf War and the sanctions, and we were refugees in Turkey until um, we came to Canada. And so I landed in Toronto in 1995, and um, called Toronto Today, it's actually situated on Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee Territory,
2: Mm -hmm.
4: um, who are the Indigenous people to that land. So I actually, I did my PhD in politics at the University of Alberta. That's in what's today called Edmonton. That's located on Treaty 6 territory, the Papa Chase and Métis Nation. And I did that in international relations and comparative politics of the global south, which is kind of just a fancy way of saying I studied development and democratization mm. in what's considered to be, you know, the quote unquote third world. So Africa, Latin America, the Middle East, which is a colonial term, it's West Asia. But, and then I did my dissertation specifically on Iraq after 2003. Mm. So I looked a lot at American foreign policy, the invasion, the occupation, and you know what happened in the aftermath. And I, uh, you know, I used um, back documents. I went to Stanford and I did some archival work there. And then I interviewed Iraqis on the ground via Skype because at the time I couldn't get ethics approval from the university to go to a war zone, basically. <laughs> But, you know, before that, I, while I was living in Hamilton in Ontario, I was a settlement counselor for refugees, mostly Assyrian refugees that came to Canada after 2003. And I did that for about two years, and that really was... It really shaped a lot of what I would later on learn the theory for or the academic lingo for, right? Because I listened to all of these people's stories coming from Iraq and telling me what it was like to feel the shock and awe campaign. So I'll stop there, but hmm. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today.
1: Yeah, absolutely fascinating. Whew, so, To give some background for for our listeners, this episode actually came from Walida because she saw this massive gap in the discussion, particularly within the U.S.'s role in Syria when it was portrayed not only in the media, but also by leftist groups. So we definitely wanted to uplift the sentiment and give room to flesh out what pieces we may be currently missing on the left. So Walida, can you start with some context behind the episode?
3: Sure. So uh,
2: I had this idea for this episode after sort of, you know, thinking a little bit about how the left, at least in the US, approaches foreign policy. And I think it's important to sort of start thinking about foreign policy more robustly. The effects of like American imperialism are so devastating around the world that it's easy to fall into a, a colonialist mindset when considering, you know, rising anti imperialist, anti colonialist movements around the world. So when we look to like support left movements globally, we also have to take care not to ignore local contexts and power dynamics, usually, stuff we have very little experience with or know very little about, unless we're like from the actual nation. And because I'm a Syrian, And that's Assyrian for, for listeners who like often when I say Assyrian, they think I'm saying a space Syrian. No, it's one word, Assyrian, Mm -hmm. (laughs) A S S Y R I A N Assyrian. You know, my view of American imperialism is not only that it destroyed Iraq and Syria. I mean, the British and the French did a good job of it before then as well, but like also what it's done to like a 6,000 year history, Mm. um, of villages and people who have lived there for millennia and how it's sort of exacerbated now a second colonialist movement by Kurdish ethno-nationalism. Mm. So for me, there's like rippling effects that are that are just immeasurably destructive. Like we're sort of being shuffled from like one nationalist group to another. So, you know, these are hard things to think about and consider, especially when you're not from a particular region mm. um, yourself. So. My approach was we need a framework for this. It can't just be as simple as we support X group because they're leftists. Um, they can be leftists and also be lots of other terrible things. Yep. Um, so if we want to have right, like so if we want to <laughs> have opinions and consider supporting global leftist movements, what are the values we should consider? Like what questions should we be asking? How do we understand like local dynamics and contexts? Um, you know, how do we make the decision on on whether to get involved, whether to uplift certain groups or not? So Syria and Iraq are sort of the modern examples for this particular episode on how to think about developing such a, such a framework, hearing from voices who are often not heard from at all. Uh, you know, people know Arabs, people know Turks, people know Kurds, and people know Persians. But you don't know Yazidis, you don't know Mandeans, you don't know the Shebek, you don't know um, Assyrians. You don't, you, like, there's, there's a huge missing component when we think about, um, the Middle East in particular, and this transcends just not, it's not just in the Middle East. This is probably true for places all over the world. So I think starting to think about a framework that incorporates local context and dynamic is very important if we're going to start being serious about supporting global rising anti-imperialist movements.
1: It's interesting when you were saying about like they can be leftists and also not great in other ways. It's like we see this you know, even in the TSA, like you can be a leftist, but also be a misogynist. And so like, I don't want to have anything to do with you. And so I think we, we have a larger framework for that on certain topics when it comes to things like sexism and misogyny. Um, like there's a growing awareness about that. And I, I love that we're bringing to light that, like, that's not the only way that we can look at the nuances of leftism. There are a
2: lot of ways that we can do that. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, Mani, uh, you should just like go off on your, <laughs> yes,
4: um, on your off U.S. imperialism. I, yes.
2: yes. <laughs> no, I love it when you go
4: off. It's, it's, it's my favorite when, thing. When you, when you, It is really a, a testament to who the world superpower is, because when you study international relations, so I, I've actually, I've never changed majors. I've always studied international relations and comparative. So you basically just study American foreign policy, mm. like literally international relations. And so IR starts with and ends with American foreign policy. And so it, it's a, it's a thing that if you are on that critical side of things you're that's basically you're always going to be a look at how america goes abroad and basically
1: fucks shit up
4: yeah you know i didn't want to i didn't want to drop the f-bomb so early but basically yes (laughs) 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 So it's um but i would say i would say that you know to start us off i i would say that first the link between so you historical context is always mm-hmm. important. Walita well, touched on this by saying, you know, we've always been under, especially after the, you know, the loss of our empire and then not turning into a state, which is how we've organized ourselves in the modern world, well in the colonial modern world, I would I should say. That's why you don't know who Assyrians are, because they they're, they're not in a state. And it's actually a testament to how great the Iraqi state was at presenting itself as an Arab national state with a Kurdish problem, mm. right? And so that's why you don't know who the Yazidis, Mandians, Shabaks, and Assyrians um, are, right? And Iran does the same, and Turkey does the same, and Syria does the same, right? So it's, yeah, so you, you really need that context. You need the context of there's, you have to start off with the understanding that there are all, there are different colonialities at play here. Most of the time when I meet critical lefties um, in the West, I mean, the West is a problematic term, but, you know, from my context, I studied in the global north. I studied in Canada. Right. And when you first meet them, they mostly think about, you know, British and French imperialism. And that's that's a fact. And that's true. Mm -hmm. And that did a lot of damage. But for Assyrians right, who are indigenous to that territory, even after the loss of their empire, they still lived on that land and basically ran their affairs, right, under different, you know, Ottomans and whoever's. But what you what you see there is Arab conquests, you have uh, Islamic conquests, you have um, Ottomans come into the story, you have Persia next door. You have Kurds uh, entering the story. Now, I, I'm not talking about people here, right? Like people all over the world, you know, they they are, they experienced colonization, they experienced conquest, they experienced violence, right? And all of them in West Asia have experienced this. I'm talking about, you know, political parties. I'm talking about um, militias. I'm talking about groups, governments, right? I'm not talking about Kurdish people when I say Kurds or Arabs, I'm not talking about people, just to be clear here, Mm. but yes, you do, you need that context because there are different layers, right? Where Assyrians have over this span of hundreds of years felt not just marginalized, but have been dispossessed from their land through genocides, assimilations, removal from their lands, right? And so, and, and then, you know, of course, when the British came and created these states, They gave our territory divided up between four modern states of Syria, Turkey, Iran, and Iraq, and then you find Assyrians being arbitrarily separated by borders on territory they've always lived on, Hmm. right? And so that's and we do really have to start from that context. But what's more, sorry,
2: sorry, I just wanted to interject really quick. So like, it's that it's the same with like. Kurds have experienced that these borders that have been imposed on places that they inhabit have also divided them and and have had to force them to choose sure. between various loyalties, right? Like Absolutely. Syria, uh, Iraq, Turkey, and the and the reason this is important to think about is because you know a- approaching approaching these like anti-imperialist movements in these areas in the framework of a colonialist mindset, meaning there are borders we have to respect, there are borders that we have to think about. The Assyrians in Syria are different from the Assyrians in Iraq, or the Kurds in Turkey are different from the Kurds in Syria. It's the incorrect uh, framework to look at these people. These are people who are one people, and they're divided Mm -hmm. arbitrarily. So, they act in concert with each other. They have common needs, goals. I mean, everybody there wants the right to live in peace. and And it's not just the Syrians that are being shuffled from one ethnic ethno nationalist state to another. It's also Kurds, you know uh, under under Turkey, they're not they're barely allowed to even be Kurdish, you know, in in Bathist Iraq, they were just considered a problem. In Bathist Syria, they were considered a problem. So absolutely so, Yeah, it's important to take these types of like we're so used to the default of looking at the world this way when you when But when if you're a member from these groups, I mean, it's the same for Native Americans, like indigenous nations here in in what's now called North America. Like, yeah, we have 50 states. We have various provinces in Canada, but their lands transcend all of these all of these national borders, these colonialist borders. So we we approach indigenous peoples in North America this way. We should be thinking about the entire world this way, not just where we are.
4: Yeah, because you can't think about the birth of the modern nation state without thinking, without linking that to colonial modernity. And you can't unlink state building from the removal of indigenous inhabitants and violence, right? Mm. And just to respond to alita's comment about how these people are one people and they are they act in constant with each other and then i would add to that that if you see them behaving differently it's not because they are different people it's because they they have different political climates to you know make decisions under right so if you find yourself in iraq the political context is different from syria or turkey or iran right and so that also has something to do with their different tactics or strategies or who their allies are when they're, you know, when they're resisting um, colonialism and state building.
1: Yeah. That's so, it's a really, really important framework to think about. And I'm so glad that you all are explaining it so eloquently. So I think
2: rain can actually um, give a pretty good, like, I know we've all heard of ISIS. We all know, uh, you know, what America did in Iraq, but Rain has done a lot of on the ground research there as well. And she can sort of give you an idea of like, okay, post, post American invasion, post ISIS, supposedly like now in Iraq, everyone is, you know, they're having elections, they're doing a bunch of stuff, but she can probably (laughs) walk us through, uh, what's been happening with Yazidis and Assyrians um, who find themselves indigenous to most of Iraq, especially center through the north, and what's been happening with them in terms of sort of cultural erasure mm. and ethnic um, ethnic erasure. So, Rain, do you want to talk a little bit about like land theft and political marginalization?
3: Um, absolutely. So I think it goes without saying that uh, life for Assyrians in Iraq is incredibly difficult. They are being crushed politically, economically, culturally, and they are marginalized in almost every way imaginable. And I mean, it is difficult for any minoritized group to exist in a state, or in the case of the Kurdistan region, a region uh, where the rule of law is not enforced, it's almost impossible for us to survive. And so, just to um, put things into perspective, in Iraq, Assyrians are predominantly concentrated in two different areas. So one area is called the Nineveh plain, which is located in northern Iraq and was occupied by ISIS for nearly three years. Today it exists in mostly a state of devastation, which has prevented many Assyrians who were forced to leave in 2014 from returning. Uh, prior to the 2014 ISIS invasion, there was an estimated 200,000 Assyrians in the Nineveh Plain alone. Um, but since its liberation in 2016 and early 2017, only about 40 to 50,000 have returned. Um, and even those estimates might be a little bit high. It's probably closer to 40,000. Mm. And so many are uh, many Assyrians who previously lived in the Nineveh Plain are now externally displaced and living as refugees in neighboring countries like Lebanon and Jordan. But those who have returned, for those who have returned, this past winter was brutal, the summer is brutal. Um, Although there have been smaller restoration projects initiated by various NGOs, many areas lack proper infrastructure, some homes are uninhabitable. And it's, it's truly disgraceful that this is the case now, four years later, especially with the international attention that this region has gotten um, over the past few years. Um, And it's it's a shame not only for the Assyrians, but for the Yazidi people who suffered tremendously uh, at the hands of ISIS. And so these communities deserve the opportunity to heal and to rebuild. Instead, um, as Walita mentioned, their suffering is politicized and, and, you know, they're expected to vote in elections before they've even properly resettled and in a sense restarted their lives. Um, and so I mentioned that there are two um, main areas where Assyrians live today in Iraq. Um, so that was the Nineveh Plain, which is technically, although not fully in practice, um, Iraqi federal territory. For the Assyrians that are living under Kurdistan regional government jurisdiction in the north, life has its own problems. Since since the establishment of the KRG um, in 1992, Assyrians... Who were previously allied with the, um, with the Kurds against Saddam um, have unfortunately suffered under discriminatory patterns of governance um, that have effectively destroyed the community and contributed to the erasure of Assyrians in the region, as Walita has said. Um, and she mentioned um, land theft, so I'll dive into that. So, for, for two and a half decades now, so since the establishment of the KRG, Assyrians have struggled. Um, against the KRG's confiscation of their lands and property. Um, So to put this into perspective and to narrow in on one particular case, um, we can look at the Erbil International Airport, which is owned and operated by the KRG. The airport is located in the city of Ankawa, which is considered the last Assyrian stronghold under KRG jurisdiction. The airport was rebuilt and reopened in 2010 on farmlands that belonged to Assyrians living in Ankawa. So the land was just seized by the KRG, and the legal owners received no compensation despite the hundreds of millions of dollars invested in the project. Um, Many of these farmers lost their only source of income as a result. And I mean, this is one example. There are hundreds of similar cases across the Kurdish region. And the intention and skill of this process constitutes a targeted and systematic attempt to ethnically cleanse the Assyrian population from their ancestral homelands by appropriating property to which they are legally entitled and uh, for which they possess the deeds. So this has happened across the Kurdish region and and ultimately it's resulted in forced demographic change and dispossession as Maryam mentioned earlier. And so just to jump to a a separate but related issue, freedom of speech is is a major issue under the KRG rules. So back in 2016, there was a new case of land theft in the Assyrian region um, called Nala, which is also under KRG jurisdiction. And this new case prompted a protest outside of the KRG parliament in Erbil. But um, hundreds of Assyrians that were looking to join the protest were actually held at a checkpoint by Kurdish political police and denied entry into Erbil. Um, That incident received international attention, but most human rights violations by the KRG do not. Those who are critical of the KRG, whether they're Assyrians, Yazidis, or even Kurds, Um, are often detained, beaten, and in the worst cases, even killed. So despite the KRG's tolerant and progressive public image, largely owed to its own propaganda, um, the the Kurdish region in Iraq is a dangerous place for journalists. Um, And and we can go on and on, but I'll let others chime in here, because Walita and Mariam also have um, knowledge and, and experience with this. But ultimately, the numbers do not lie. Assyrians are steadily leaving Iraq. They continue to leave Iraq even now, four years after ISIS, and almost, I would say, a year and a half, two years now since the Nineveh Plains liberation. And and those that live under KRG rule continue to leave as well. Um, and unfortunately, the reality is that many of those that uh, choose to stay often simply do not have the means to leave. Um, so I'll, I'll let uh, others chime in. Sorry, I know I... Uh, No, uh, sorry. (laughs) No, sorry. Never say
0: sorry. May I ask a clarifying question, which probably seems kind of obvious to you all, but may not be uh, obvious to others who have less experience with this. Who can you say a bit more about who the KRG are, uh, what their jurisdiction is, and how you have generally, generally, how have leftists you've encountered? Uh, view the KRG, and why do you think that is,
3: Belita? Mm. Well, you can uh, start this one.
0: Yeah, I can. I can take that. <laughs> um, so the Kurdistan Regional Government
2: is uh, comprised of three provinces in Iraq. I don't remember how many total there are—twelve or something in Iraq. I'm not sure, but they—they they encompass um, Dohuk, and Erbil provinces. They border Iran, Turkey, and Syria. It is it mimics the no-fly zone that was implemented during the Clinton administration after the after the Gulf War in 1992. And they basically, that territory was sort of gifted to them um, after the Gulf War, and they sort of built their power structures throughout the 90s and, and into the 2000s. So basically, you've got Two main political parties: the Kurdistan Democratic Party, which is anything but democratic; it is run like a mafia, with the Barzani's um, at the head of at the head of it. And you know, you ask you ask Kurds that live there, and unless they're directly connected to the party, they they live miserably as well. I mean, Assyrians suffer under the Kurdistan region, sure, but so do Kurds. Um, mm-hmm. The other the other political party is the PUK, the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan. They were Marxist in their founding but that doesn't really mean much anymore. Um, There's a a smaller third party called the Goran Party, which I think means Freedom Party. Um, The P.U.K. and Goran are staunchly anti-KDP. I lived lived under Goran, Goran and P.U.K. jurisdiction when I was there, and I would have to pass through KDP checkpoints just to go from one province to another. So it's like, sure, the Kurdistan regional government is made up of three provinces, but you can't cross their borders because they just hate each other so much. They're always warring with each other. One thing that I wanted to draw connection to Syria, when 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 uh, Miriam and I earlier were talking about how these nations um, transcend these colonialist borders, we see very similar things happening um, under PYD and, and YPG rule in Syria. So the YPG are the militia arm of the basically de facto Kurdish government of northern Syria now. Since the Syrian war broke out, They've had their own version of Kurdish autonomous movements there. And they've done very, very, they're considered socialists. They're considered Marxists. They have close relationships with the PKK, which is a Marxist party out of Turkey. The PKK has been run out of Turkey. So they've moved down into Iraq and Syria to sort of pursue their nationalist project for freedom, in essence, uh, from, from those territories. So what we see now is Assyrians in Syria almost step by step re-experiencing what what we've ex- been experiencing in iraq which is political marginalization land theft you know forced conscription into their militias school books that are teaching kurdish national history rather than people being allowed to sort of study what they want to study it's it's repeating itself so you know the, the reason that, to drawing the link is so important is because we can't really divide like what's happening in Iraq from what's happening in Turkey from what's happening in Syria, especially since these two groups share so much of this territory. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Rojava, Rojava is what Northern Syrian Kurds call their territory. Rojava just means West. Uh, It means West Kurdistan. So, So Northern Iraq is considered Southern Kurdistan, Turkey, Southeast Turkey is basically considered North Kurdistan. So this is a broader ethno-nationalist project. Um, some of the parties pursuing it are capitalists, like any Iraq. Some of them are, are socialists, like the YPG. A- at the end of the day, they're all nationalists. They're all ethno-nationalists, which is a layer that sort of poisons all other layers. Um, mm. And and R- Rain was right. Like, like the progression from suffering under Saddam Hussein to suffering during the Iraq War, and this is both for Kurds and Assyrians and Yazidis and other ethno-religious minorities. The Kurdish governments and militias have been receiving a lot of support from Western powers, especially, because they're they're basically promote themselves as pro-Western, pro-democracy. The reality on the ground is very different. So not hearing, not hearing about these things in context and not sort of understanding what what's happening on the ground and choosing your sides without really understanding the power dynamics that are happening there is directly causing the ethnic uh, cleansing of minority indigenous groups. Um, it's, it's continuation. Um, you know, you can't have a land of the Kurds um, and not have it be an ethnostate. I mean, it's it's what it means. It's it's like Israel. When you say this is the land of the Jews, it means it's the land of the Jews. It means you're, you know, maybe we'll let you live here, but you're gonna follow our rules. And frankly, you know, that that's that's fine if imperialists wanna look at the world that way, but I don't think leftists should be looking at the world that way. I think leftists no. <laughs> and socialists <laughs> no, they should they should not be they should not be falling into the same trap, which is why it's it's time to like start considering these things. Mariam, I know you, you, I know you wanted to add something. I,
4: you know what I, I just uh, what you said was so spot on, yeah, I would just add that you know the area that you're looking at that they're claiming as Kurdistan is almost an exact map of Assyria, right? So this isn't just right. um, yes, it is a case of you know, a people being marginalized. But it is also a case so Kurds are marginalized in those spaces because they are a minority in terms of their relations with Arabs or Iranians or Turks, but it is also a case of you occupying contested territory, territory that people who are indigenous to to it are claim. Right. So, I mean, that's your, that's the first problem. And then, so what, but when we use these categories without looking, so when we talk about Kurdistan all the time and, you know, and, and, you know, the Karajis, their propaganda machine is truly excellent because you, you do see a lot of critical or lefty, even, even in the West who think that, you know, um, that the Kurds deserve a state but when you're what you're saying when you say that when you define you know self-determination as statehood for Kurds what you're saying is that you're all that's equivalent to the dispossession of Assyrians from their lands that's equivalent to their continued political cultural and economic marginalization and it's can it continues the conquest of their lands, the occupation of their lands. And they learn this from, you know, the best people around. So I mean, when you see that their policies of renaming spaces, like, you know, the Arabs renamed Arba'ello to Erbil Arbil, and then they're calling it howler today. Yeah. When you see that when you see them looking at the citadel of Erbil and they call it Kurdish, right? That's that's been there way before you ever got there. Right. And when you see them calling us Christian Kurds, Saddam used to call us Christian Arabs. Right. I mean, assimilation, state building, ethno-nationalist state building in this manner always looks the same, no matter where you yeah, are. Right? It does. So they're mm-hmm. not doing anything different. What the left should be doing then is something different. Right. Right. But I would also just, you were talking about who uh, this this rhetoric of, of oppression, right? So like lefties think, well, these guys were oppressed, so we should back them, we should support them. And, you know, governments did the same. Right. Is it, yes, it was because who seemed the most willing to work with Americans when they came in 2003 and came is such a nice word when they invaded in 2003. <laughs> right. It was also it was also about who was the most oppressed. Right. You have is this, you know, this rhetoric of who the most oppressed under Saddam, the more credibility you had under American eyes and the more power you got in the new Iraq. Of course, this did not translate to vulnerable minorities, only to the major power blocks where you have Arabs and Kurds, and the Arabs were divided between Shia and Sunni, right? So, and that's, you know, that's rhetoric that we all know, but that's really important to, um, to consider is that rhetoric of oppression and how that played out on the ground in 2003, and then what that meant for indigenous Assyrians.
0: I have a burning question, um, and this has, you know, has to do with me being sort of a root and tootin' active person on the left in Chicago. Uh, some leftists, uh, most notably like Marxist Leninists, have sort of this this framework where they say that if you speak out against various leftist militias and governments, that you are supporting U.S. imperialism. Um, And there have been times when I've found this argument kind of compelling, but listening to you talk about, you know, colonial mindsets and mindsets that come along with sort of this ethnic nation building and nationalism in general, it, it really sounds kind of like a backwards idea that it's imperialist to support or to not support leftist governments that are being oppressive to indigenous peoples. Do you want to speak on this? Have you heard this argument? Yeah, I have heard this argument. I'm, I'm sure Mariam
2: um, also has some stuff to say about this. I'll just quickly say that like it is completely understandable to see rising anti-imperialist movements in the areas that, that the U.S. has utterly destroyed and want to support them and want to be like, yes, we support you, whatever you need. We know what what you've suffered and you deserve better and you deserve more. And I think that is that general quality is a natural one. I mean, I have, I have that instinct when I hear about these types of movements happening globally, but because I have the, I have the unique viewpoint of living under, under a rising socialist, so-called socialist movement. My people live under a socialist, rising socialist movement um, in Syria. And because of that, I tend to pull back my assessment or support of groups that I'm unfamiliar with, that I'm unfamiliar enough with, because when a powerless group, when any powerless group gains power, I'm interested, I'm interested now in understanding how they wield it. How are they wielding this power? Are they uplifting it? correctly or are they using it to build to just build their own power and to hell with the collateral damage that may very well be other people. It's that collateral damage that that's supposed that we're supposed to accept it in the name of a greater cause. Um, that is an imperialist mindset. That's what America asks us to do. They whip up their supporters into a frenzy to accept any collateral damage in the name of democracy and freedom. And it's bullshit.
1: It is bullshit
2: thinking that way, if we it's bullshit, and if we really live our principles and if we really want this better world that we believe can happen that we then we then we have to ask and study and look at the context and see is this really something we should be supporting? Is this something that's damaging other nations, other people's, the environment whatever it is we have to have the whole picture and we have to understand it better and that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that i'm like anti-kurdish freedom for example or like uh, it doesn't mean you then automatically stand against the rising tide or the rising uh, leftist groups what it means is you don't ignore the context you don't ignore what's happening so that you don't hurt them one if if they're if if groups are allowed to act as oppressors to build their own freedom, Mm. then, then it's not, it's not leftist. It's not socialist. And it's not different. It's not different from what imperialists ask their populations to do and ask their supporters to do. So when you approach these questions, yeah, of course we want to support all these groups globally. It's, It's the only way to win the world, but but be like consider consider what else is happening mm-hmm. listen to those living under its new power listen to what they're saying how they're approaching it and you know what you have to be careful who you listen to because bathists when they were ascendant in the middle east they had Kurds and Assyrians that would come and say, Baptists are great, Baptists are wonderful, they're secular, they're feminists, they're adding women to their ranks, they're doing all these wonderful things, it's better than living under, say, a, a theocracy or a monarchy, which may have been true for them. But it wasn't true for the Kurds that were murdered under the Anfal campaign, right? And, and it's not true for the Assyrians that were martyred for fighting for their cultural freedoms and democratic freedoms. So you have to listen to who, you have to be careful to who you're listening to. There's always going to be members from an oppressed group. We see it here in America that join with the oppressors to act as the voice for that group, you know, in essence, whitewashing away what's happening. So Mariam, Mariam was saying this earlier, and I'm going to let her sort of say it again about how complicated these issues are um, and why this is such a difficult topic to discuss. But, you know, I'm hoping that the, starting the conversation today will get us somewhere.
4: Yeah, uh, I think you're right. It, it's it's a lot of times not only are these these things are so complicated, and you know the media, academics, all of us when we're when we're looking at them, when we're analyzing them, our first instinct is to simplify them so we can understand them. But the problem when you do that then is you uncomplicate things that are very complex you gloss over things you leave out things you ignore things uh, and sometimes that also serves a purpose it's not always accidental but then you then you forget that there are real people on the ground and their lives are being destroyed by all your studying and all your foreign policies and all of your even in in you know in in this case even in the kurdish quest for a state right so you have to remember that there are layers and these things are complex but also you have to remember that a lot of you know lefties so-called lefties or they use rhetoric that's anti-colonial when in fact they are doing the same things like walita said and we've seen this time and time again once adam invaded kuwait he used post-colonial rhetoric Mm. saying that they they were arbitrarily divided, they were colonially divided. Ahmadinejad, who used to, you know, be uh, the president of Iran, used to go to the UN constantly talking against imperialism, American imperialism specifically, and the whole world used to clap for him. Meanwhile, he is a dictator. Saddam was a dictator. So, I mean, yes, you know, but there are better people out there who talk about anti-imperial stuff that you could be listening to. and for me, I would look at the people with no power. and this is this is my problem with like saying lefties and critical and things like that. Yeah. I mean they're, they're such problematic terms in the in the first place, right I don't know an unproblematic term, right like mm-hmm. grassroots people, whatever. but like <laughs> I would look at I would look at the powerless. I would look at the ones suffering. For me, that tells me how power is operating. That tells me mm. who, who has power. That tells me who's using power. That, tell me, that tells me all kinds of things, right? Yeah. So it tells you I everything. Would look, right? So I would look at the powerless. And the fact is, post-2003, it was not the Kurds who were powerless. In fact, you didn't even see the occupation of northern Iraq. Right. You didn't they, they didn't feel the war in the same way that Baghdad and the rest of Iraq did. Right. So, I mean, you have to you have to look at that. You have to look at people who don't have the power. But when you go somewhere, you give power to the most powerful and you leave the vulnerable to fend for themselves. Then you institutionalize a system where the most powerful. So the ones with the strongest militias or the ones that were best armed dictate what the state looks like. Then you have a situation where the indigenous of that state then are systematically targeted, dispossessed, displaced, marginalized in every way, economically, politically. And then they're given a number of seats in this dysfunctional quota system to placate them. But the big guys figure out a way around it. We saw it it in the current election cycle in Iraq, right? So don't forget that these people are learning the ways of the world and the way of colonialism is to divide and conquer. And that's why you see sectarianism filtering down in even the smallest of groups like the Yazidis and the Assyrians, because not only does the system speak this language, but so do the power blocks that I mentioned earlier. And Iraqis are capable of more people, I'm talking, not stupid political parties that are out to control power, maintain power, get power, right? They were also living under a dictatorship and a regime that distorted their history, taught them garbage, but they they have to unlearn. They have to decolonize but you aren't going to do it for them lefties lefties are not going to do it for them from them from america i mean Mm. what can you do as lefties quote-unquote in america is look at the margins the actual margins the powerless and this then tells you who to be in solidarity with and by solidarity i don't mean you just talk for them I mean, you're actually (laughs) listening to the people on the ground, listening to civil society, Mm. because usually they are the vehicle towards democratization. Not all of them, but a lot of them. Right. I mean, Iraq, like the U.S., has conservative, violent, centrist, modernist, lefty elements. Right. Like, it's not like Iraq is just one thing. I mean, if you can see yourself as a plural society, why can't we see Iraq as a plural society? Right. So, but you have to actually listen to these people and be in conversation with them instead of telling them what what democracy means. They know what democracy means. Trust me, I interviewed them.
1: Yeah, also, the U.S. <laughs> doesn't know what democracy means, so
4: now right. I know. somehow you became the model for democracy in the world. I have a lot to say about that, but I'm gonna... yeah. It's just, I, I, I want, want to. You, have to, you have to with these indigenous activists, right? Inside, where like on the ground. Right. You have to listen to them. You have to ask them what they want, what they need, what solidarity looks like to them. Mm. Not, not not thinking this is this is what I know. Because you can't democratize through invasion and occupation. In right. even the most basic understanding of liberty and democracy, the conditions for either of those things can't be applied from force or from above, right. or from the outside, even. It has to come right. from the development and accessibility of civil society from below, mm. right? Actual Iraqis, aside from exiles who were so out of context and had no popular base for the most part, were not involved in this project to, quote unquote, democratize Iraq at all. Right. And I mean, mind you, all the evidence doesn't point to the actual end goal in Iraq being democracy at all. So, I mean, in that case, that's just rhetoric. But what I'm saying is even that rhetoric where you go in and you say this is what democracy looks like and then you impose it. Because you think that this society doesn't know how to democratize itself, right? right. You think that they're, they, that they're just people who are attached to identities but have no clue about lefti- leftism and centrism and moderate politics or politics in general, but they do, right? I mean, oh, history yeah. shows us all societies oh, yeah. are capable of making changes from within, including your own. The idea that these traditional societies are forever traditional unless some external force, and usually... This means a Western imperial power develops them, or modernizes them, or liberalizes them, or democratizes them. This is a myth with very violent consequences, as we yes. saw in Iraq. Right? I mean, yeah. Hmm. I, the more you study democracy and all over the globe, you you know you learn that economic and political progress or democracy, whatever it is, those things are universal. But it looks different everywhere. It has different definitions. It has different paths. It ha- it has the institutions are based on particular political historical cultural context of these specific societies mm-hmm. i mean so-called democracy was built on slavery and the disposition of genocide of the native people right. yeah natives yeah <laughs> right but like but then america then goes all over the world and then pretends to be you know democratizing people and giving them liberty mm-hmm. which is not just laughable it is very violent and has actual consequences on real people's lives for sure right and and this is the problem is when you're thinking when you only think from on top then you miss what's happening on the ground and you miss who's suffering and who's suffering can tell you a lot it can certainly dictate what is a good policy and what is a bad policy
1: we're going to be dividing up into two parts and this is going to conclude our first part so definitely join us back next week as we kind of talk about the ways that capitalism influences the area and a bunch of other stuff with our incredible guests. Well that's our show. We are so, I feel like my brain is like on fire right now so really, really grateful to our guests and to learning about this amazing topic.
0: And obviously there's so much more to learn. Um, so hopefully we can, uh, Maybe do more stuff about this in the future if you have anything to say to us about it um, or you have more questions or you know people who have uh, interesting things to say about this, you can email us at seasonofthebee at Mm gmail.com. You can also email us about other stuff, like if you're not a dude and you have a cool band that makes cool music that you want us to play.
1: Yes. We love to uplift your music. You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook at SeasonofTheBe. Rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. We have a super awesome live show coming up. Live, August eleventh. It It will be alive. It is going to be so good. We officially have an MC. She's rad as fuck. We're excited for you to meet her and come watch her interview us and ask us questions. And it's going to be great. It's going to be super fun.
0: It's going to be at a place called called Star Bar which is located in Brooklyn, which I hear is a place in New York City. Um, So come say hi to us if you're there or if you live nearby and you can make the trip. Um, We're going to be in New York City that weekend. And also there's a dance party after the live show. So there'll be plenty of time to like rub elbows and talk and get to know each other.
1: Yes. You can buy tickets on our website at seasonofthebee.com. And they're $15 in advance, and it will—we're—we're we're assuming it will get close to selling out because we can only fit like 65 people in there max in there maximum. But so go ahead, get your tickets. It's gonna be
0: great. Okay, I guess it's time to go. Well, I, I love, love you. you. I love you.
1: Talk to you soon. Bye. the bitch.